This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at your question. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Handmade, the making podcast with real talk about materials. I'm your host, material scientist Anna Pajajski, and this episode I talk to Canadian leather tanner and maker Daniel Stermack-Stein. Daniel is based in rural Ontario in Canada, and so we dialed in on Zoom across the airwaves to have this conversation about the craft of tanning animal hides to transform them into leather, the material, and then turning that material into wearable garments. I started by asking Daniel to tell me the story of where his love for leather all started. Well, it's it's quite a circuitous story, and it began... Um, well, I was born and raised in downtown Toronto, which Mm -hmm. is quite a different place than I live in now. So big city kid, normal childhood. And I, I became really interested in anthropology as a teenager. So specifically how other people lived and how radically different that was from my urban upbringing. Mm. And at a certain point, I I really wanted to start going camping. That wasn't, even though you might assume being in Canada that everyone's camping and (laughs) out in the wilderness and all this stuff, it's not true for a lot of the population, including my uh, upbringing. So the first time I went camping was 18 years old with my best friend on my birthday. And I just fell in love with this new thing called being outside and mm. wilderness and, you know, fresh water and trees and animals. And I just wanted to pursue that. And I bought all the camping gear and just went full speed into camping. Cause that was the one little Avenue that was available to me. And mm. it, it eventually turned into a, uh, a desire for learning about, I guess, what's called primitive skills. I don't know if that's too familiar to most people, but it's, um, it would be basically how to camp minus any of the 
tents, right. water bottles, packaged foods, all these sorts of things, how people used to live in the the wild. Mm. And it's wrapped up in all sorts of philosophical, sorry, philosophical um, principles and things like that, that, that that wasn't really the driving force for me. It was, well, how do you just be a human out, out in the bush, basically? Mm. And somewhere in there, I ended up moving to Wisconsin and going to a, a school for wilderness living, as it was called. And that is where I first encountered hide tanning, which was something I'd never really heard of, was not on the radar. Um, you know, the furthest thing from my mind as an urban vegetarian, it turned out, I should add in there, was um, skins and mm. the obviously related uh, practice of killing animals, whether right. it's hunting or slaughtering or all of this. And that's a big, you know, it's pretty daunting, scary sort of vaguely taboo thing although i'm sure it's similar in england there's a huge ethical meat um awareness that seems to be rising now mm-hmm. um and so i was basically given a deer hide and told how to tan them and i i didn't really like it the first time so it wasn't a magical <laughs> encounter with you know my true calling it yeah. was uh pretty slimy uh at times a little bit stinky (laughs) and on the other end was an amazing beautiful totally not stinky totally not uh slimy piece of leather Mm. and it was something about how you could go from one to the other that really started something stirring in me very slowly at first but over the course of now um 14 or 15 years it's become what i try to do most of the time and and i i have really deeply fallen in love with it and uh you could call it a little bit of a sickness i think is an apt way to describe it that there's a little bit of um you just have to love it to do it i guess Mm. and and i i should clarify that there really doesn't have to be anything stinky or gross about it that's that shouldn't really be the case and is largely a consequence of either neglect or, um, you know, too many things going on at a time mm-hmm. to uh, things kind of get away, from, get away from you. And when you're dealing with animal products, it's more consequential than, you know, if you're making you know, cotton garments or something like that. Sure, so, sure. Yeah. So we'll leave mm-hmm. our we'll leave our thoughts of stinky animal car- carcasses at the door for this episode. <laughs> well, I mean, it is important because there's a lot of, um, I guess, prejudice and taboo that goes into it. It's a huge history. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, one of the, I believe, it's the only reference to permissible divorce in the old testament is if you're the wife of a hide tanner what and you basically don't need any other reason to divorce <laughs> that man than that seriously yeah mm-hmm. and i can't give you the the quote but it's in there it's, it's definitely in there yeah that's amazing so you well so you've yeah. gone through quite a a radical trans transition then from being as you say you know vegetarian to actually getting really very hands-on with deceased animals and creating materials out of their hides um so -hmm. it would be great to hear from you you know what these materials are really like and i suppose as part of that how how does that transition go about 
in terms of the processes that you have to go through in order to turn animal into material? Sure. Sure. I think the best way to describe it is, as you said, it's a transformation and it's really, I think somewhere deep in the human imagination, it is really one of the one of the primary magical transformations that really enables life. I think really it's, it's at the level of fire and mm-hmm. cooking mm-hmm. that it's that fundamental to basically being alive is of course it's linked with uh, humans being able to live in temperate climates. Animal skin is the way that that happened. Basically instead of evolving more hair, thicker skin, etc. I don't know what the right language is, whether it was a choice or how things happen. It's kind of lost Mm. in the mist of time. But that ability to take an animal skin, which is for ourselves included, it is the way that we are protected, housed, held together. Mm. Most of our feelings and sensations of the world occur to us through our skin. So to take someone else's, obviously an animal skin, that is the animal's been killed, skinned, and at that point, there is a very rapid diminishment of the alive properties of the skin. Basically, it's mm-hmm. going to either rot or dry out and turn into a very hard and brittle material. And so the tanning becomes a transformation whereby you're re- um, imbuing the skin with its living qualities. Mm. That's what's so special and amazing about leather is it's the living qualities of skin that are somehow made more or less permanent. And of course the original context for leather is clothing. It's not luxury goods. And so much of the things we think of are shoes, which are, which are clothing too, but, uh, it's really draping them on your body and going about your life in a, uh, much more defended, warm, um, beautiful fashion. Mm. And so it, it starts with the skinning and making this, taking the skin off properly. It's a, it's a real art form. Yeah, I bet. And then it's a, it's a constant negotiation with the rot that basically wants to immediately settle in because the skin is uh, as the interface between the body and the world, it's the one place on your body other than your digestive tract that has all sorts of bacteria already on there. Right. And they'll immediately start loosening the hair on the skin. And so you either have to dry the skin immediately, freeze the skin, salt the skin, all of these things, um, or one of them, to preserve the skin, to then get to the tanning. And it's... It's quite an it's quite a complex organ. Like you you'd think of skin as I don't I shouldn't say you, but the you think of leather as skin. Mm. But really leather is depending on what type of leather you want to make, it's a selection of uh, layers of the skin that then makes the leather. So you're Mm. always having to remove at least one layer, minimally one, and that would be the inside layer that basically connects the skin to the muscles. Mm -hmm. 
in order to tan that skin. And that would be for a fur skin to leave the hair on. If you want to remove the hair, um, then the hair is actually, um, the, the hair follicles are in the second uppermost layer of the skin. So there's a top layer that's removed and then the hair is either pulled out of the hair follicle um, seats, I guess you could mm-hmm. call them, in the, the dermal. Str- There's all sorts of technical terms, which I don't think are going to be helpful to anyone sure. listening. So I'll a little bit try to avoid them. Um, but safe to say that the hair has to be removed mm-hmm. safely. It's not just cutting them off because you need all of the roots to come mm. out. And this is when you get a little bit more into the chemistry of how this is done. So often it's done with, with um, lime, which you had a, okay. a wonderful episode on that, which yeah. I really enjoyed <laughs> with the Roman archaeologist. Um, and it, I mean, there's, there's so many different ways to do it mm. that it's really astounding that almost every people in every part of the world have come up with the way that they do it Mm. and to say that there's one way is really just to say that you don't know the other ways you're you're more so saying that than than um that there's such a thing as the right way to do it i don't want to just keep talking is there (laughs) something (laughs) that you want to be clarified with sure um you spoke about the differences between sort of leaving the hair on or removing it. Um, what I suppose there's two questions in there. Firstly, what's your preference? Do you tend to do both or, or do you do one rather than the other? And what animals do you tend to work with? That's a good clarifying question. Thank you. I tend to work with deer and uh-huh. moose and sheep and goat. Okay. Those are the four with the sheep basically you're always leaving the wool on Mm. there's a correlation between the quality of the wool and it's a sorry there's the better the wool the worse the skin they say and sheepskins generally are regarded as not very high quality okay because they've been bred to have the wool right that's so interesting Mm -hmm. yeah and the more hairs there are the, the poorer the leather because it's that more porous. Oh, of course. And then because we've bred sheep to have as much wool as possible to be most efficient for our own needs, right? So the, the mm-hmm. skin tends to be mm-hmm. poor quality. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So with the sheep skins, I'm always leaving the wool on. Mm-hmm. And there can be rather difficult because that hair is very easily loosened. Mm. So you have to be very careful every time it gets wet, the bacteria basically jump to life again mm-hmm. and they can really loosen the hair. And the deer and the moose and the goats are all done with the hair off. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I'll do, I'll usually store them over the winter because it I, we're doing either our slaughtering or I get them from the slaughterhouse in the fall mm-hmm. or hunters, I should say, for the deer and moose. And the first thing you do is remove the flesh off of the inside of the hide. So there's a thing called the hide tanner scraping beam, mm-hmm. which is uh, at its most simple, 
a curving piece of wood that slants away from you and you pinch the hide between your abdomen and the beam and use various forms of two-handled knives to push, in this case, the flesh off, basically. Mm. A little bit cutting, a little bit pushing. Depending on the animal, it's either easy or very difficult. I mean, in general, it's very difficult, Mm. I guess you could say. Yeah. It's a lot of work. And, of course, any industrial tannery, they're doing all of these things by machine. Sure. So it's quite a rare exception that any of this is done by hand, Mm. but it is the way that it was always done for, I mean, the archeologists say up to a hundred thousand years is maybe how old this stuff is. Yeah. So you take the flesh off, push the flesh off with the tool. And then at that point, that skin is safe to be stored in one of the various methods. So salt is is the most common industrially and is the easiest because basically that arrests any bacteria mm. just right there. Drying, weather dependent a little bit and a little bit harder to restart again because you then have to take a more prolonged soaking period to get the moisture back into the skin. Or freezing would be the other one, a mm. little more dependent on where you live or whether you want to fill your freezer with hides, which <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I generally tend not to do yeah. because we have food in there and they don't mix terribly well generally. Yeah. Refer back to the wives and the divorce. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yes, we have we have various rules in our house and farm regarding <laughs> yeah, the boundaries of hide tanning, for sure. So I think one question that is going around my mind and possibly around the listeners' minds as well is why, I suppose, why do you do this? You know, the, the reason has changed over the years. So originally it was just something I was so fascinated with and mm-hmm. I didn't really have or particularly need an explanation for it. But now that I do it as much as I do, I do feel a responsibility to have something to say about why this is important for me. So part of the context comes to, you know, it's specific to Canada. Mm. And um, there are a lot of, sorry, and Ontario, which is where I live, the province of Canada. There is a huge um, hunt that goes on here. Basically, if you want to hunt a deer or a moose, more or less, you can, you can buy a license. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, sustainably managed. I use air quotes to say that because it doesn't, you know, that's not the only criteria that makes something healthy or not is whether mm-hmm. or not you're killing too many of them. Yeah. Generally the skins are not part of what people are hunting for anymore, or I should say they are not they're generally left in the bush and the meat is what people are after slash the trophy of the antlers and such. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, on many, many levels, it's something as a, a a lover of the wild places of our country, those that are left, um, it does trouble me. It's a pretty rough and tough time of year. It's, uh, you have to wear these orange hats and vests because it's pretty dangerous wow. to be walking around. Like, yeah. and 
you know, there is still such a thing. And, and uh, it, a lot of this divides on cultural lines too, um, as a healthy hunt, something that is a respectful act towards the animal. And there's such a thing as that not being the case. Mm-hmm. And I, I really f- felt that, um, that these, the animals deserve better than they're getting in the hunt and that a lot of things are going sort of quote unquote to waste from Mm -hmm. that, including the hides. And I, at one, on one hand saw this opportunity of all these skins going to waste. And on the other, there's something that's lost to humans in not preparing and tending to leather from the animals that, you know, still do grant us our life, whether it's through farming, whether it's through hunting, or whether it's through, um, you know, the health of ecosystems and such. Mm. And one of the oldest links that makes this tangible is, of course, eating, like it's the most clear, but the second is the clothing, that Mm. this was a huge part of human history. And that in the wearing of skins, there is some remembering of an older way of living in the place that you do. Mm. And I mean, if it's, there's all sorts of ecological arguments at two, which aren't quite as important to me, but they are hugely important um, that the way that tanning is done, the way that clothing making is done and the way that food making and processing is done are hugely problematic Mm. and to do things a little more on a smaller saner simpler scale where these things aren't having to be shipped around the world is it's just inherently healthier inherently more human and um it keeps things alive in i guess you could say a community awareness of um what what some of some of what we've lost in outsourcing so many of our basic needs Mm. that actually really nicely leads me on to my next question which is to ask you about the significance of doing all of this stuff by hand you know you said that the majority of leather is produced um with machines and sort of through mass manufacturing but why Mm -hmm. is it significant to you that it's done that you do it by hand the significance of doing it by hand comes largely down to that. That's the way that you can do this on your own, okay. hardly, or right. in a smaller group. You those. I mean, it's not like a comparison would be woodworking. And I've thought about this a lot for the home woodworker. There is a huge assortment of pretty cheap power tools that you can buy and use in your shop, in your garage, or even just outside in your front or backyard. There is nothing similar with leather, (laughs) partly due to the nature of the material and partly probably due to demand, I guess. And, you know, an industry having been built around it, Mm -hmm. but you can't get leather machines. Sewing machines are different. That's kind of the other side of things. Um, The actual making of something out of leather, which is, you know, ultimately leather is in some senses similar to a bolt of cloth. It's not a finished 
something. It's now a material. And that's one of the really interesting things, actually, because leather is not natural. Mm. Yes, it can be made by hand and done naturally, but it is not something that exists in the world like wood. Yeah. Skin is something that exists in the world, but leather is a purely human made thing. Mm. And to do it by hand is to learn a heck of a lot about the material of skin and this amazing and old and I think very, very beautiful and very soul stirring to a lot of people, not just myself, to see something go from the skin of an animal to, well, I would say to a piece of clothing, because mm. that is ultimately what I'm making is clothing. Then the tanning is, is how you get there, a beautiful and immensely um, alchemical, transformative, all of those things, way of getting there. But it's, it's part of the preparation for the clothing making. Mm. And you can do all of this at the location of either the hunt or the farm. You can do it at home, not exact, not necessarily in an urban environment, because that would probably be a you know, certain degree of public health concerns and things like mm -hmm. that. But you can do it without recourse to places that would be very unfamiliar to the way that that animal lived their life. And mm. I, I value those kinds of things. Mm. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It would be really great to hear about the objects that you make from these tanned hides. You hinted a little bit about clothes, but what do you like to make out of leather? I My favorite thing to make is coats. Mm -hmm. I, I realize your listeners won't be able to see it. And I, I actually forgot to bring anything with me, but it's all on my website and oh, stuff great. like that. I'll link to that. But uh, thank you. Yeah. I love to make coats. I 
love to make vests, sheepskin vests are one of my favorite things to, I mean, yeah, they're, they're one of my favorite things to make, um, bags of all sorts. I'm learning to make shoes, but that is a surprisingly difficult form of, of art. And it's, it's like a architectural feat (laughs) um, compared to some of the other things. Sure. And there's, there's something that is really stirring, I think, to a lot of people about leather clothing, because it is something that is so old to human culture and human life. And, you know, there was a time where what people wore, and it was up until pretty recently, actually came from the place that you did. Yeah. And actually was imbued with meaning and cultural context and status, not only in the hierarchical terms and things that have become very problematic with clothing and status nowadays, but it was a fundamental act of beauty and belonging to the place that you are from and the ways that your culture lived there. Mm. And was so linked to food, obviously. And now it's become like a waste product of food, mm. not as integral as a gift, you know, in a, is similar to the meat that is that comes our way from the, the killing of animals, but also the the leather that that comes our way. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite thing about leather? My favorite thing about leather is is leather. (laughs) And I'll explain that a little bit. Most people have not smelled or touched or even seen what I would call real leather. Mm. The industrial stuff, they actually put in a thing called leather scent to make it smell like what we think leather should smell like. Yeah, because those the chemicals that are used, the uh, solvents, mm. the in the intense processing, there's so little life left in that stuff. I'm sad to say. I mean, it is genuinely still the skin of that animal, but it's so stripped of so many of the wonderful and lustrous and beautiful things about that skin that it's it's really hard to compare the two. Mm -hmm. Um, There is just something so luxurious. And I don't mean in the elitist sense, but in the, it sense, but in the, in like the old places of the human soul and human memory, I think that is what is conjured by that. And sadly, most people don't know that they haven't had a chance because there's so few I guess you could call them traditional tanneries uh, mm. left. I think there are a few in, in England that I know of mm. and a few in America and um, not many left. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. if listeners want to do their part and support, you know, local leather industries or um, I don't even know what the right, what would be the opposite term to the industrial I guess the artisans, right? The handmakers. Yeah. Yeah. Leather workers, small yeah. tanneries, uh, micro tanneries, I think it's right. kind of okay. becoming a thing now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, how can listeners go about yeah. doing that? 
I think I think it's pretty easy nowadays to go online and find these things. Yeah. Search small scale tannery, tanneries, search mm-hmm. ecological leather, search um, you know any of the terms that would come to mind regarding that non-industrial leather, handmade leather. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few of the the specific types of leather because it, it is is it's different types of leather also that are made by hand than what's industrial mm. produced like you can't make chrome tanned leather or you really shouldn't right by hand yeah. like you really really shouldn't touch that kind of stuff yeah the the chromium acids and whatnot yeah um uh, would be bark tan bark tan leather. Right. So most people may be familiar with, or more likely to be familiar with vegetable tanned leather. So that means not tanning with carrots and beets, but tanning with vegetable as in the vegetable kingdom. So whether it's leaves, uh, nuts, various fruits, mm. and especially barks, that's the old, old European, but also Middle Eastern and North African mm. type of tanning. Oak being the most common. So if you look up bark tanned or traditional vegetable tanned leather, Mm. or this would be more in the North American context, but brain tanned leather or Mm -hmm. fat tanned leather or smoke tanned leather, which are kind of the same cluster of things, which has become, um, that's what's turned into particularly in Europe, like chamois leather or chamois. Yeah. That is that that's the oldest type of tanning in the world. That's the one that you would talk about for a hundred thousand years ago mm. and stuff like that is fats, brains, eggs, liver, those sorts of things, specific types of fatty acids that are easily emulsified in water. Mm. Very rare thing that a fat can mix with water. And that's what allows the tanning to happen relatively easily that those fats can be carried by water into the skin and mm-hmm. then provide that suppleness or re-imbue the skin with the suppleness that was mm. part of the living animals mm. um, i want to come mm-hmm. back to leather's use in shoes in in modern shoes um mm-hmm. but it would be it would be a really interesting avenue to go down before that, and this ties into your earlier interest on sort of anthropology and how leather has been used throughout history. Mm-hmm. Um, what other uses and impacts has leather had? Indeed. Well, the first one that comes to mind, and we we touched on it as far as the biblical reference to divorce <laughs> that was allowed uh, for the wife of a high tanner, was the Bible. The Bible has only ever been written on animal skin. Mm. In its early context, of course, now is paper, but in the early dissemination of Judaism and Christianity, only on parchment, which is, it's not really a type of leather, depending what the terminology, what, how you engage with the terminology, Mm. but any writing in the Judeo-Christian tradition is animal-based, written on parchment. The book itself was completely a invention of the leather uh, sorry it's based on leather yes book which is pretty big deal it's a huge deal actually that's really Mm -hmm. interesting because i I wrote a little bit about that um in my book that i've got coming out soon in the paper chapter because one of the precursors to paper was um papyrus the ancient egyptians um but because it was sort of layered up with these very thin strips of sort of cellulose 
you can't fold that into a book because it sort of crumples and cracks. Whereas the sort of subtlety of parchment did allow them then to start folding things into books and then, you know, massively condensing data storage. Um, And that Mm -hmm. condensing of data storage allowed libraries and it allowed knowledge to actually be able to travel, um, you know, beyond beyond the sort of Egyptians and I suppose Mediterranean climate. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the impact of that, like you say, is just vast. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Yeah, I I love thinking about these kinds of things. So a few others would be boats, ships, and sails, mm. all of which used to be made of leather. Right. There's an amazing book called The St. Brennan's Voyage, where an Englishman makes a, I think it's 8th century AD, oxhide boat to test whether St. Brennan, a real historical figure, could have sailed to North America. And wow. they did sail to North America no in an oxhide boat. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it might sound a little rougher than what they actually made. It was an amazing achievement and very learned how to do this properly because mm-hmm. their lives were certainly on the line. Um, armor is a big part of... Uh, the history of warfare is Mm. leather armor. Mm. You can make uh, armor, sorry, you can make shields that are impenetrable to arrows with with rawhide. So it's not really a type of leather, but this was a part of every um, early fighting force uh, until knights Mm. came around with metal, which was certainly much more costly, but more effective. And then of course, leather basically died out other than in boots as soon as modern, uh, you know, bullets and firearms came Mm -hmm. into, to use. Um, Sadlery, of course, sadlery, we talked about a little bit with the traction, but the ability to ride a horse. Yes, you can do it bareback and some people and cultures did, but most people have come to a saddle as the, bridge between the human and the horse Mm. and so that of course is made of leather Uh, wine skins made of leather Mm -hmm. water carriers Mm. sports balls musical instruments of course is one that not a lot of people think about yeah Um, shelter tents roman infantry tents were made of leather goat skins vegetable tan goat skins Mm. And so they had a huge infrastructure of tanneries to supply the armies because they had their armor, they had their tents, they had their sandals, all Mm -hmm. of which were leather. And that is a big part of the dissemination of tanning techniques throughout Europe was through the Roman occupation of Western Europe is how these things got disseminated, largely Mm -hmm. from the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Those um, are a few things there. Yeah, so many things. Um, <laughs> and when you accumulate all of that together, the impact of this material on education and um, knowledge distribution, trade, wealth, you know, it, warfare, <laughs> the more you think about it, the more the kind of the greater the impact that it, you kind of perceive it to have. Um, but I said earlier that I'd like to come back to the issue of leather shoes Um, Because I've definitely waxed lyrical on this podcast before about um, 
uh, leather walking boots. <laughs> and actually just I, leather... heard, I heard you, yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> leather boots in general, actually. Because um, I am a vegetarian and in general, I would um, shy away from uh, unnecessary exploitation of animals, I would say, as a person, the choices that I tend mm-hmm. to make. Um, sure. However, for me, the material of leather does not have an a synthetic equivalent that performs as well um and the 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 payoff isn't worth it for me so i i would compromise <laughs> my my usual morals to to always get um things like leather footwear because like you say it does perform differently in terms of its breathability um and i suppose also its wear properties as well which is which is really interesting mm-hmm. in itself. Um, so I'm interested to hear your thoughts on, I can probably predict them, but um, what are your f- thoughts and feelings on so-called vegetarian leather or, you know, polyurethane <laughs> equivalents um, sure. for these kind of products? <laughs> sure. It's not something I've thought a whole lot about. Um, but I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is it's not right to call it such and such leather. I'm not saying you're coming up with a term. Yeah. I know it's out there like mushroom leather. Yeah. It's not leather. It's just yeah. not, it's yeah. a different material. It's a textile. Yeah. It's, you know, you'd never call linen fabric, like linen leather. It's just, <laughs> I mean, I, I know they're trying to imitate something and they're trying to market it as an alternative to that, Yeah. but really it has other than you know, certain, yeah, it it just has very little to do with leather other than by comparison. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I understand that there's a huge critique of the leather industry, which I share Mm -hmm. and actually underwrites and motivates at least some of what I do as an alternative to that. Um, You know, ultimately the leather is something that is human, as we talked about. It's not a natural material. It's a human-made thing, which also means that on some level, it's very democratically available. Mm. You, not you personally, but all of us have a cultural and ancestral way that connected us with the animals that we depended on, whether it was hunting, farming, pastoralism, things like that. And you do have, we each have recourse to this tradition. There's animals that live pretty close to anyone who's around, you know, maybe they're factory farmed and stuff. And, you know, you can have a role in whether that furthers or doesn't to a certain degree as an individual uh, choice of where you buy stuff. But ultimately, you're never going to be able, you or your local community or even, uh, you know, one step beyond that to produce synthetic boots. Mm. That will always rely on a huge industrial system. Yeah. Whereas leather really doesn't have to and it shouldn't. Mm. So it could be far more local than it is now. It, I would say it must be. It should be uh, sustainable. Um, you know, the, sorry, the questions of a a local economy, you know, you can never have a local economy with synthetic, Mm. you know, urethane leather or whatever there, maybe some of the mushroom ones, I don't really know. 
I yeah. doubt that it can be done, you know, by hand at any realistic uh, level. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, I'm not so much a kind of a brave new world kind of guy, but a little bit more of, um, you know, there was, there were, there are things in our history that we can look to as not going back to things, but moving forward with a connection and a relationship to what preceded us and um, not be so quick to move on from, you know, what was understood as very human in our collective pasts, which mm -hmm. was living with, in some form or another, animals, with a system of agriculture that also included our clothing and needs above just our quote-unquote food. Um, you know, one statistic that really blew my mind was that in, 18, in the 1850s, the second most common profession in the United States was the shoemaker. Really? Second to farmer, of course. Wow. But so this was every village had a shoemaker. Sure. I mean, this is probably still, I think, as far as I've done my research uh, in Europe, it's more common to have um, your shoes repaired than it is in North America okay. or to rely on a semi-local shoemaker. I don't know how true that actually is. But if mm. you ask most people one of their grandparents was likely involved in the textile trade. Mm. One of your grandparents might've been a tanner or somewhere back there or yeah. worked in a tannery, which wasn't necessarily a great job. I grant you that in a large, you know, Victorian era tannery, whether mm. new world or old. Um, but now you would never find anybody of a peer of our generation who's involved in textiles mm. or, I mean, you you would because of your <laughs> interest in sure. these things, but most people yeah. don't know someone who works in the clothing yeah. world because it's been so outsourced sure. to the rest of the world. And as soon as you divorce it from being part of the village center, let's call it, mm -hmm. that's where all of these gross abuses of morality can occur because yeah. it's out of sight and mind from everybody. Mm, absolutely. So don't be surprised when you know you ship things off to the third world that you hear ten years later or how crazy it's gotten over mm -hmm. there. Yeah, totally. And you actually, know, and that's the cost of of cheap stuff. Yeah, it is. And I think if you talk to anyone who's interested in sustainability, including the future of energy, um, a lot of the conversation now is about uh, local production of energy and other resources. Right. Um, and right that gives you that smaller scale gives you a greater flexibility in terms of being sympathetic to your local environment to making the most of your local environment um mm -hmm. and being as sustainable as possible in in all senses of that word um right. so it's really interesting right. i think to extend that to materials in mm -hmm. like leather um from your perspective it would be great to hear from you sort of if, if listeners have enjoyed hearing um, your tales in leather and want to see some of your products, um, what's your website? Where can they find you online? I can be found at www.theherdsthrone.ca. That's the Canada mm -hmm. domain thing, as well as on Instagram at, at the Herds Throne. Awesome. Thank you mm -hmm. so much for today. And thank you for reaching out. Um, I've, I've absolutely loved our conversation. It's so interesting to think about not only these materials and processes, but um, their wider 
impact um, culturally, historically, um, and also in the future. You know, it, leather is not just a historically relevant material, um, and it definitely That's has right. a part to play in hopefully creating a sustainable future. I agree. I agree. I've enjoyed it immensely as well. I did have one other thing that occurred to me to say I left out of the history. Go for it. Which was that most people don't know, but the Industrial Revolution was very dependent on leather because all Mm. of the belts that connected the steam engines or the water power to the machinery was made of leather. And it was the only material that could have done so. Yes. Very interesting thing that, uh, you know, really expanded my imagination as well as troubled me about Mm. uh, the, the history of leather, that it really enabled the whole crazy thing we now know as the industrial revolution so that was the awesome daniel Sturmack stein thanks so much to him for sharing his passion and expertise on all things leather with us that's everything for this time as always it would be awesome if you could like subscribe and review the podcast on apple podcasts you can say hi to us on social media we're on twitter at real talk that's r-i-a-l talk and on instagram at handmade pod if you have the means to do so and you feel like supporting us with a one-time financial donation you can do so at supporter.acast.com forward slash handmade thanks so much to everyone who's already given that a go it really does help to keep us going massive thanks as always to alex lathbridge for the music mix and a huge shout out to dave shepherd for our awesome cover art as of next episode this podcast is going to be having yet another branding overhaul with the launch of my book handmade and so a huge final thanks to dave shepherd for the service of his brilliant illustration which has served as a cover art for this podcast for the last year or so you can check out more of dave's stuff at daveshepherd.com Next week is going to be a very special episode where illustrator and former podcast guest Hannah Ayub will be turning the spotlight on me and interviewing me about my new book, Handmade, which is coming out on the 13th of May. I'm very excited for you to hear that conversation. But until then, take very good care and I'll speak to you next week on Handmade. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue checkmark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.